All right, everybody, good evening to you all. Open your Bibles, please, to Isaiah chapter 51. We're going to begin in verse number 17. Isaiah 51, we'll start where we left off last week, right here in verse 17. Let's begin with a question. What do bad children need? Your options are A, a spanking, B, a savior. There's a C option, but I'm not going to tell you what it is yet. Anybody want to yell out an answer? Yes, Mr. Frank. Corruption. C? Correction. That would be spanking? Well, I would think it more like instruction. Like... Okay, well, then let me define my terms. Bad child has received instruction and disobeyed. Okay, spanking. <laughs> now he needs a spanking. All right. Does anybody want to say, not a spanking, but a savior? Fine and fair. It's you, I mean, do you not need, have you been a bad child? Do you need a savior? All right, so obviously the answer is both. All right, a cruel ruler, a bad God, would only ever just spank and never offer anything else. A weak pushover God or ruler or parent or whatever would only ever just bless, no matter how bad or rambunctious the child may become. But a truly unique and remarkable ruler, God in this case, not only does the one, but offers the other as well. This one isn't an offer. You're getting this one whether you like it or not, and you're not going to like it. This one is an offer. You deserve this one, you're offered this one. You don't deserve this one, but because he is so much remarkably better than any other ruler you could ever imagine, you even get the offer that you don't deserve. I, I, I deliberately phrased the question vaguely, and that's I, I shouldn't do that. But I said need. If I say what do they deserve, but even then, words are so, in the words of Ronald Reagan, words are stupid things. He meant to say uh, something else, I think. He said facts are stupid things. Words are too sometimes. Words are so imprecise that even if I said what do bad children deserve, you might start running to different conclusions and think, well, you know, nobody deserves this. He should want that. You know, you pay the price for salvation so then they can have... You could justify it whatever way you want to justify it by wordplay. But just generally speaking, if you do bad, if you do the crime, you should get the time. If you, if you are uh, uh, disobedient, you should receive some form of corporal punishment. That's what you deserve. You don't deserve this. The fact that you're even offered this, that you get this, is amazing grace. That's the text we're going to study. Starting here, Isaiah 51, verse 17. It starts, in my Bible, and I'll bet in yours too, with two words, awake. Is that what it says? Wake yourself. Awake yourself, same idea though. Awake, awake. Or it's doubled for emphasis in the old Bible. Here's much as say awake yourself, maybe with an exclamation point. It is the third, or actually the second of three times in very short succession Isaiah is going to say this. Earlier in this chapter, in verse 9, he says, awake, awake, O arm of the Lord. That's his 
one of his little favorite pet phrases to describe the Messiah. And he says, awake, awake, rise up, stir yourself to action, O Savior to come. He's talking about the Messiah there in verse 9. So, awake, awake, O Savior of the people. Then here in verse uh, 17, he, he says, awake, awake, O sinners of the people. So you've got the Savior of the people, you've got the sinners of the people. When we get to chapter 52, which we'll get to here tonight, Lord willing, you're going to get another awake, awake. It's awake, awake, O saved of the people. You're getting the plan, the people who need the plan, because you need a spanking. But, nope, listen, a parent spanks a child, and the sting of the pain, no matter how bad it is, goes away a few minutes, a few hours, Right? When God spanks you, and when God eternally spanks you, the pain never stops. It's eternal. It's everlasting. It is damnation. You need that because you did wrong, and the, the sense of justice within God is aroused and compelled to pay you back for what you did to Him, which is your sin. But because this is so eternal and everlasting, what you need to get out of this is this, right? Again, that's the sloppiness of words. It's the same word, but it carries a different connotation. You need the spanking. You don't deserve a savior. But you need a savior because you're going to get a spanking, right? It's like you're going to fall in a hole. What do you need? A ladder. That's what this is. But you don't, you don't deserve the ladder because you walked off into the ditch. Your father kept telling you there's a hole there. Don't go in there. And you said, watch me. And you jumped in the hole. And then there you are. You're in the hole. That's what you get. You broke your leg when you fell. That's your spanking for your punishment for not doing what you're told. You need a ladder. You don't deserve it, but you need one. That's the idea. So awake, awake, O Savior, verse 9. Awake, awake, you sinful people who deserve this and don't deserve this, but are going to get this after you've gotten this. So you're going to get both. So this is verse um, uh, This is verse 9 of this chapter, chapter 51. This is verse what are we on? 17, and this is 51, verse 1. And that's what you're going to get tonight. All right, let's start. Verse 17. Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, who has drunk at the hand of the Lord. Drunk what? The cup of his fury. That's this. You got your spanking. Now drink it up. You have drunken the dregs, the King James says, the, the large cup, the goblet, not, not a small sip. They're not sipping the cup of God's fury. They're downing shot after shot, getting drunk on the cup of God's fury. The cup of trembling, it says, reeling, literally it means, the staggered appearance of a man who is punch drunk and has wrung them out, drained and sucked the life out of you by way of drinking God's punishment. So they drunk and drunk and drunk and like drunk people, they passed out, keeled over on the floor. Now Isaiah says, get up. Verse 18. There is none to guide her, that's God's people, among all the sons whom she has brought forth. Neither is there any, any that takes her by the hand of all the sons that she's brought up. Who can be found amongst the people to save the people? No one. Because all the people have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All the people of Judah have fallen into disrepair and disrepute and dis dissatisfaction with God. They are all destroyed, wasted, in the proverbial sense and the drunken sense. They're all lying on the floor after having a stupor of drinking this and, and binge drinking of God's fury. So there's no one around them who can save them. And yet, they're going to be given a Savior. We've been hinted at him, uh, been hinting at him earlier in this chapter and other texts as well. But the Savior won't come from among the people. It's not going to come from them up to God. It's going to come from God down to them. So, you're just in this terrible state and no one can save you. Verse 19. 
These two things are coming to you. And who shall be sorry for you? He hasn't told you the two things yet. He just adds that little stinger there. You're going to get these two things. It's actually four, but it's two pairs of two. You're going to get these two things. And who's going to feel bad for you? Nobody, because you're a bad child. You did wrong. You deserve this. What are you going to get? Desolation and destruction, famine and sword. That's what my Bible says. Does everyone's Bible have two pairs? Yeah. Yeah. You're going to get desolation and destruction. That's the tragic things that will befall the city of Jerusalem. Desolation and destruction. Your beautiful city, sparkling, shining, this beautiful city on a hill, will just be a ruined wasteland after Babylon is done with them. And then, famine and sword. That's the tragic that's going to befall. The tragic is going to befall the people of the city. Because Babylon's going to surround you and lay siege to you, and they're going to starve you out, and they're going to watch you suffer and die in your streets. And who's going to be there to comfort you? By whom shall I comfort you? Is how the question ends at the end of the verse. By whom shall I comfort you? There's not going to be a Moses that I raise up from among you to save you. There's not going to be a David to slay the Goliath for you. No, your salvation is not going to come from you up to me. It's going to come from me down to you. But we're not there yet. Verse 20. Your sons have fainted. They lie at the head of all the streets. As a wild bull in a net, they are full of the fury of the Lord. They are full up. They have completely drunken themselves with the fury of the Lord and the rebuke of your God. They have all, all your sons, your sons, those are your warriors, those are your fighters, those are the ones that you would ordinarily raise up as champions to go out and, and fight the Babylonians in this case. You're big invading a horde that's coming to invade. They're going to surround our city, they're going to starve our people. No, they're not. We're going to go fight them. You're just throwing ants at a fire. You're not, not one of them is going to help you. Not one of them is going to save you. They are all just wasted people. They're just lying drunk and dead on the streets. 21. Your salvation will not come from you. 21. So therefore now hear this, you afflicted. Listen up, you drunken, not with wine, you people drunken on the fury of the Lord's wrath. Thus says the Lord, the Lord thy God that pleased the cause of his people. Thus says the Lord who takes an interest in his people. Thus says the Lord who judges over his people. Thus says the Lord who watches over his people, who wants the best for them even when they do wrong, and he spanks them because he loves them and offers them that which they don't deserve. Thus says that Lord who pleads their cause, like he's taking them to trial on their behalf, he's judged them, he's found them guilty, and yet he's still going to save them despite their punishment that's coming. Behold, I have taken out the hand your hand, the cup of trembling. I have taken the cup of trembling out of your hand. I have taken this, this goblet of my fury that I forced you to drink. I made you drink it all till you were dead on the streets for all your sin. And now, I'm going to take it out of your hand. I'm going to remove my punishment from you. Even the dregs of the cup of my fury, you shall no more drink it again. You will no more drink again my fury. I will no longer be angry with you. You can put it this way. Your sins will I remember no more. This is a salvation promise that you're reading here. You have gotten your spanking. Now, I'm done spanking. 23. But I will put that same cup of my fury that I take out of your hand into the hand of them that afflict thee. See, one of the things, and you're going to get this a little bit later, one of the problems that Judah's going to have when they go into Babylon is they're not really going to appreciate the fact that they absolutely deserve to go to Babylon. But they are a bunch of uh, ungrateful, spoiled, adulterous brats that deserve to get their time out. 
But they're not going to see it that way. They're going to see it as God is not fair, that this is not our fault, it's our parents' fault, and we're just, you know, they ate sour grapes and we've got the indigestion, all those things they say in Ezekiel's book. It's all their fault, not our fault. This is, this is all you, God. You are a bad parent. All these things that they'll say to God, blaming everybody but themselves, and blaspheming instead of just eating it, just taking their punishment, eating it. But God says, in the midst of all this promisement and punishment, oh, oh sorry, I almost lost my thought because um, I'm getting older. Uh, because as they're blaming God and accusing God, one of the things they'll say is, you're using this evil nation against us. So, okay, we're bad, but Babylon's not bad. You're using Babylon. Aren't they terrible? And God promises in Jeremiah and other places, yes, Babylon is bad, and I'm going to use Babylon to spank you, and then I'm going to spank them too. Because God is a judge, and if you're guilty, you get the spanking. So I'm going to take that cup of wrath out of your hand, and I'm going to put it in their hand. And those who, those Babylon, who have said to your soul, bow down, that we may go over. And thou hast laid thy body as the ground and as the street to them that went over. Those who, proverbially speaking, have walked all over you. Those Babylonians that treated you or will treat you like dirt. I'm going to take that cup of my wrath out of your hand. I'm going to put it in theirs. We've already heard this in one way or another. We've already been given the prophecies and things about the Persian Empire rising, conquering Babylon, and that being the impetus of the Judeans going home. Well, this is what Isaiah is promising here. Yes, I'm going to use them to punish you, but I'm going to use Persia to punish them. And then I'll use Macedon to punish Persia. And on and on and on it'll go. Because the, in the end of it, the whole statue of Nebuchadnezzar is going to crumble, and the only thing that's going to remain is the eternal kingdom of God. That's, that's the whole big picture that Daniel paints in chapter 2 of his book. So, uh, arise, arise, you you drunken people, you sad sack uh, people who have drunk from the cup of God's fury. Let's take that cup out of your hand. You're not going to be punished anymore. This is done. Now, here's something you don't deserve. Let's talk about our Savior. Verse 1, chapter 52. Awake, awake. Same idea. Poetically, he repeats himself to draw the eye to that connection. You've got this, awake, awake, in verse 9. Awake, awake, O Savior of the people. Awake, awake, O sinners of the people. And now I'm going to take the cup of punishment out of your hand. That's salvation. So what? Awake, awake, O saved of the people. Awake, awake, put on strength, O Zion. Put on your best, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For henceforth there shall no more come into you those uncircumcised and uncleaned people, those Gentiles. You won't have to worry about invaders from foreign lands coming in and driving you away like Babylon's going to do by my providential allowance. That's not going to happen anymore. Now it's a new era that begins. You don't read this and try to find, how does this work in the, in the physical world? Because Judah's going to come out of Babylon exile through Persia's oversight, and Persia's going to have them. I mean, they're going to be living in... Jerusalem and Judea, but under Persian rule, and then eventually under Macedonian rule, and under Seleucid rule, and under Roman rule, and under whatever rule you'll have all throughout history until some weird, offshoot, bastardized version of whatever they are now technically is independent, but it's just it's a, it's a total difference of what they were as a nation back then. For, for their whole history, they were under occupation, more often than not. So what does he mean here when you're not going to have to worry about Gentiles anymore? They will always be having to worry about Gentiles, not spiritually. Because I'm going to take away your spiritual uh, oppressor. And that's the, the Gentile oppression of them is used as an allegory, as a metaphor to describe the beautiful salvation of the Messiah. Yes, you'll, you'll be in occupation to Persia or to the Seleucids or to Rome, but you'll be saved. So it won't matter. 
That's the idea. So put on your best dress, Mrs. Jerusalem. Put on your finest garment. It's getting out of town time. It's getting out of Babylon time. So put on your best clothes. Let's go out. Let's go home. The Messiah is waiting for us. Verse 2. You've been sitting in the dust, which is a, a description of mourning. Time to shake the dust off. Time to kick the dust off because you're no longer going to be mourning. Now you're going to be rejoicing. So shake the dust off yourself. Arise and sit down on Jerusalem. Loose yourself from the bands that have been around your neck. You're no longer in bondage anymore. You're coming home out of Babylon, out of captivity, you captive daughter of Zion. You're not going to be captives anymore. 52.3 For thus says the Lord, you sold yourselves for nothing. And you shall be, my Bible says, redeemed. You say redeemed? Redeemed. Bought back. That's the meaning of the word. It's a financial term. You should, like you redeem a coupon, I'm going to redeem Judah. I'm going to buy them back without money. There will be, and this is what Isaiah is building to, a heavy price. There will be a big payment, but it will not be money. They will be sold to Babylon for nothing. They will be taken into Babylon, not because God was in debt to Babylon and had to pay off his debts by giving away Judah. No. It's not that they made him an offer he couldn't refuse. No. It's punishment. They're going away when he didn't want them to go away. He didn't want them to be disobedient. He didn't want to have to punish them like no parent does. But they had to be. They deserved to be. So for nothing. It was for nothing. I mean, it has a great end. It has a great purpose. It was, it was their correction and so forth. But like anytime you spank a child, you didn't have to spank the child. You had to, but you didn't have to if they would just have obeyed. But because they didn't obey, now you force my hand. Right? Judah didn't have to get their spanking, but they disobeyed. So they forced God's hand. It was for nothing. didn't have to happen, but it did. Now I'm going to redeem you. Not for nothing, just without money. Verse 4. For thus says the Lord God. And this has happened throughout history. My people way back in the day went into Egypt to sojourn there. The Assyrian, number two, oppressed them without cause. And now what have we here? Verse 5. So he gives you a quick little three-point outline of the history of Judah, which basically is in captivity, in captivity, in captivity. They go into Egypt, starts out okay, ends up pretty bad. Then they get out. Assyria takes the north, it's bad from beginning to end. Then they go into Babylon, it's bad at first, ends up kind of okay when Persia takes them. So you're in captivity, in captivity, in captivity, shackles and bonds and chains and hardship and toil. That's your history. Now what do I have? you got Egypt over here, you got Assyria over there. Verse 5, now therefore what have I here, says the Lord, my people taken away for nothing. They that rule over them make them howl. The old Bible says, wail in pain and agony. And my name continually every day is blasphemed, not by the Babylonians, by his own people. I put you in there because of your idolatry, and while you're in there, you're blaming me. And not a one of them ever blamed any of their false gods. Isn't that ironic? Those same gods they turned to instead of Jehovah, not a one of them helped them when Babylon came. And they didn't credit a one of them for their disobedience or why they went to Babylon. They all recognized Jehovah put us here. It's not nice. It's not fair. It's not good. Bad Jehovah. Well, the very acknowledgement of that implies his ability to do that. And the fact that your idols were doing squat for you. Eventually, these people started to figure it out. They started to learn the rules and they understood we didn't need to worship idols at all. And when they come out, that's the one thing they'll drop. They'll pick up basically every other sin, but they will no longer be idolaters. That's in fact, that's verse 6. Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore they shall know in that day that I am he that does speak. Behold, it is I. 
They won't credit any idol with their salvation. They'll credit me with their salvation. They didn't credit any idol with their punishment. They credited me. So once I'm done, they'll be a lean, mean, Jehovah-worshipping machine. They'll come out serving me only. And as they come out, they're going to be singing glad tidings. As they come out, they're going to be telling everybody, did you hear what happened? We were in captivity. We were lost, but now we're found. We were in shackles, and now we're free. We were, we were doomed to eternal destruction, and now we're saved. We're saved. Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. How beautiful are the feet of the singers that sing that song wherever they go. Verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that brings good tidings. Gospel, good tidings, good news. That publishes peace. Not war, not hostility with God, but from God is peace. That brings good tidings of good. That publishes the news of salvation. Guess what? You can be saved. That's the news of salvation. That says unto Zion, your God is a king and he reigns on high. That's the message. That's the song that they're going to be singing from the mountaintops to the rooftops to every place in between. It's what Paul will quote, paraphrase. In Romans 10, when he's talking about Gentile salvation and the gospel spreading to Gentiles and Jews alike, and he says as that gospel goes out, it's like happening all over again. What Isaiah predicted would happen to his people. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach that gospel message to those people afar, just like it was beautiful here to these people. It's also, this verse is kind of a beautiful little yang to the end of Proverbs 6. Among the things that it says that God hates, somebody read Proverbs 6.18 for us. And tell me if you can't hear the flip-flop here. Proverbs 6.18. The heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil. There it is. One of the things God hates is feet. How, how ugly, how horrendous, how reviling are the feet of those who rush to do evil. But how beautiful are the feet of those who are swift to bring good news. And what better news is there than you who did evil can now be good. You who is condemned can now be freed and saved. Thy watchmen, plural, shall, verse 8, shall lift up the voice. With the voice together they will sing. For they shall see eye to eye. The watchmen with each other will see eye to eye. They'll be singing the same song. They'll be appreciating the same salvation. When the Lord shall bring again his people to Zion. They will be singing the same song of redemption, whether they're Jew or Gentile, bond or free, male or female. They will all be one in Christ Jesus, seeing the same thing, eye to eye, in fellowship with one another. That's the salvation of the Messiah being promised. And what do you do when you have that kind of message? What do you do when you hear news that good? Break forth into joy, verse 9. Sing together, you waste places of Jerusalem. That's what the Babylonians will do to your city. They will level it. They will take it from its splendid uh, uh, former estate to this ruined wasteland of an ex-town, a ghost town of a, of a dead city. And to those uh, shattered remains of a city, sing to bring it back to life. Sing, you wake places of Jerusalem, because the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem he put you in exile and he bought you back. What is the purchase price for God to buy you back? See, he has three servants. We've talked about these things multiple times. He has three servants. He has his servant that fell into sin. That's Judah. 
He is the servant of Persia, Cyrus, who will redeem Judah in this world. But God's hand in that is purely providential. He simply played the game of the world in his providential way that I can't even fully put into words because words fail me trying to explain providence on such a grand scale. But providentially, he, he uh, brought up Cyrus to be the one to free the people from Babylonian exile. Okay, but that didn't cost God anything. It's not much of a redemption. But there's a third servant that will save them. This servant will pay a price. Verse 10. The Lord, how will they be saved? The Lord will roll up his sleeves and make bare his holy arm. doesn't say roll up his sleeves, but that's the idea. He will make bare, roll up his sleeves to make bare his holy arm. Awake, awake, O arm of the Lord. 51 verse 9. Awake, awake, O arm of the Lord. Behold, the arm of the Lord is not so short that it cannot save. God's arm is his savior, his doer, his one that works the power of redemption. His arm is the Messiah to come. Now it's his time to take center stage. And how do we see him on center stage? Do we see him glorified, exalted? Do we see him beaming with golden light? Do we see him bathed in a, in a white robe, shimmering with heavenly radiance? How do we see him? Let's see how we see him. The Lord has made bare this holy arm of his in the eyes of all the nations and to all the ends of the earth. They shall see the salvation of our God. A phrase which in this context means he will, he will save Judah and all the world will see it. He will save his people. Remember, Jesus himself says, that he came to redeem the lost sheep of Israel. But his salvation will still spread to the world. But his mission in an immediate sense was the salvation of his people. That's the fulfillment in the immediate sense of the Abrahamic promise. It will spread out to anybody so that anybody can be a spiritual descendant of Abraham. Galatians chapter 3. But in the immediate sense, he came to save his people from their sins. That's here in Isaiah. He will be this redeemer of Judah. This redeemer of these Babylonian exiles. And all the world will see, look at what a savior they have. I want to get in on that. And he will say, it's yours too. Verse 11, 52. So, read, 50, uh, read 10 and 11 together. The Lord may bear his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our Lord. So, depart, depart. Go out from here. Go out from Babylon, you Judeans. Don't touch the unclean thing. Go out of the midst of her. Be clean and bear the vessels of the Lord. Those things which the Babylonians took as trophies out of the temple for they burned it down. Take those holy items back. Because holiness is coming back to the holy city. Not in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense. Your Savior will come. And he will be here, bringing salvation from here. Verse 12. For you shall not go out with haste nor by flight, for the Lord will go before you. This is not a breakout. This is not, you know, the, the guards aren't looking quick, everybody make a break for it. No, the Lord's going to march you out of Babylon. The Lord will go before you, ahead of you, you following. And the God of Israel will be your, the old Bible says, re-reward, which means protector. He will march before you. But Lord, what if they come after us? I will be your shield to guard you. Imagine that this, if this is almost a retelling of the Exodus with one humongous difference. You've got Babylon swapped out for Egypt. You've got um, you know, a, a marching out of a city under Persian rule in place of ten plagues and a Red Sea crossing. But the big difference is, instead of Moses, just some guy 
you have the Lord himself acting here as the Redeemer. He is taking the role that Moses once prophesied he would. Because he was Moses who had that first role of Savior of the nation. That was Moses' job. Go down there and save my people. Bring them out of Egypt. I'll give you all the power to do it. Because it's not within you. It's within me. I'll give you. So Moses goes. He does the thing. Ten plagues. He opens his hands. There goes the Red Sea. But it was, it was Moses doing that leading. And then after they finally get to the promised land. And then they circle around a few times. And then they get back to the promised land. Moses says in Deuteronomy, you're going to get another me one day. Another prophet will rise up like me. And to him you will all give heed. That's Deuteronomy 18.30 or something like that. Um, so the, Moses told us that was coming and now here he is. And now we see it's not just some other guy. It is actually God doing that Moses role. And because back in the day when it was Moses, God had to give Moses the power because he was just a man. Now it's going to be God who just has it inherently. God who just is the Savior being this Moses saving the people from their bondage. So I'm going to go before you. I'm going to be your protector. I'm going to bring the pillar of fire. I'm going to bring the cloud. I'm going to bring the Red Sea crossing. All that. I'm going to bring the Passover when I see the blood. Verse 52, uh, 13. Behold, my servant, that's this one we're talking about, shall deal prudently. Everything he does will be done with wisdom and with understanding. He's not going to do rashly or he's not going to just fly by the seat of his pants. He's not going to wing it. What he does, he does with a purpose, which flies in the face of the false doctrine that says he came here to do one thing, the Jews screwed it up, so he had to do something else in, instead. That would not speak to dealing prudently. That would be someone who has to improvise. And God never has to improvise. God does not improvise. Improvisation implies you weren't prepared for every outcome. An all-knowing God knows every outcome. So Jesus doesn't improvise. He deals prudently. He knows what he's going to do. He has the wisdom to do it. And he shall be, my Bible says, exalted and extolled and be very high. Somebody go back about 50 pages in your Bible. Read Isaiah 6 verse 1. Isaiah 6 verse 1. The picture that you're about to hear is the prophet Isaiah, our inspired writer, being called up to the throne of God himself to receive his commission to go preach. And he describes the scene. It's basically a heavenly recreation of the temple. What it would look like to walk inside the temple, but on a galactic scale. He sees golden pillars and he sees altars and he sees angels which, which are etched into the fabric of the cloth that separated the holy from the most holy place. Except now it's not fabric, now it's actual angels. And he sees not a, a golden box with Aaron's rod and some Ten Commandments. He sees the actual throne of God and who is sitting thereon. Isaiah 6 verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up. And the train is of robe filled the temple. Like a king has that robe, you know, and back in the days of King Arthur, it was red, that little black flex on it. I don't know what that means, if it's some kind of animal. I don't know. Anyway, he had that big long thing. That's the train. And however long it is, the more ego the king has, the longer the train is. And that's what the servants have to carry behind them. You know, a, a wedding dress, same idea, big long train they carry behind. Well, this is the one and only king who deserves a big train. His train is so big, it fills all the whole floor of the temple. So no matter where you stand, you're standing on holy ground. And Isaiah says, I saw this one whose train fills the whole temple high and lifted up. So imagine how much bigger it has to be to come all the way down from a high and lifted up position to fill all the temple with his train of his, his divine royal robe. But Isaiah describes him with those words. I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And if you read John 8, Jesus says, or John says in commentary in Jesus' conversation that Isaiah saw Jesus. That Isaiah saw the Messiah high and lifted up. 
Now here is that same Isaiah saying, Your special servant of God who will save you is high and lifted up. He is exalted and extolled. Same imagery. Verse 14. High and lifted up, exalted, but for what reason? We lift up people who deserve celebration. We lift up people. We, they are the Rudy. We put them on our shoulders and we parade them around South Bend, Indiana, right? Whoever shoots the game-winning shot, and we put them on our shoulders. We lift them up. Someone who deserves to be lifted up for their for, for, for praiseworthiness. We lift them up. Why are we lifting up this one? What has he done to be lifted up? Verse 14. As we see him high and lifted up, people will look at him and they will be shocked at what they see. What does your Bible say? Many were what at him? Astonished. The old Bible says astonied. The SH isn't there because it means shocked. It means awestruck. Mouth gaped open. His, to look at him, this one, in such an elevated and lofty position. It looked, you know, positioned like a king. But this king has an appearance that is so marred, I've never seen anybody beaten up, scarred, and bloodied like this person more than any other man. But he is a man. His form is like the sons of men. He looks like one of us. He doesn't look like anything remarkable except for what's been done to him. In other words, if you can get behind, get away from the scars and the blood and the, the pain that's all over his body, he's just a guy. He's not like, he doesn't have glowing skin. He doesn't have eyes that are shooting lightning bolts. He doesn't have this shimmering golden hair. He doesn't have feet of brass. Like when John sees him in a, in a Revelation state, in Re Revelation 1, he's not like that. He just looks like some dude. He looks intentionally average. And seeing him like this, 15, will cause many nations, the old Bible says sprinkle for some ignorant reason, but the word means to shock them. He will cause them to be Shock. I think it's even the same word in the Hebrew. He will, they will shock. To, to see the horror. To see it will be to have horror. And look at the next phrase. The kings shall what? What does it say? Shut their mouths. Look at me. You ever do one of those? You drive by a train wreck or you drive by a car crash or you drive by a house that's burned down. You can't even put words to it. You just, even rulers. The ones who... Their only job is to project confidence and stability to their realm. When they see this one lifted up like a king, what happened to this king? For that which had not been told them shall they see. You've never seen anything like this, previous verse. You've never heard anything like this here. And that which they had not heard, they will be forced to consider. Now that's the news. That's the glad tidings. That's the salvation that's been promised. I mean, that's not the glad tidings. The glad tidings is we get to be saved. That's great. What did it cost? It cost this one. This, this one, this person who is going to save you, you're going to raise up on an elevated platform. You're going to make him your king. And you'll think, well, yeah, of course. I deserve to die. He's going to save me. Of course I'll raise him up as a king. Let's have a look at our king. <gasps> what happened to our king? You happen to your king. 53 verse 1. There's the news. Now who's going to believe this? You're going to see things you've never seen before. 
You're going to hear things you've never heard before. You're going to consider what you've heard. Now, who has believed this report? We, all, we know Isaiah 53.1. We've heard it quoted in the New Testament. We've heard it quoted other times. Keep it in its context, okay? You're going to hear about this king and what he did, what he went through to purchase your salvation. You weren't bought with money. You were bought with that. Look up at that throne and see that king so beaten up more than anyone's ever been. That's what it cost to buy you back from your Babylon, which is Satan. Now, who's going to believe that? To whom is this arm of the Lord revealed? Awake, awake, O arm of the Lord. For whom is he saving this people? Who, who, who is going to be the recipients of this message? Surely it's a deserving people. Surely it's a people whose heart wants this, who feels remorse over this. Who has believed this report of this price that was paid for our redemption? To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Somebody read John 12, 37 and 38. John 12, 37 and 38. Though he, had, though he had done so many, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? See, I love when the New Testament does this with the Old Testament, because then I don't have to think, I don't have to wonder, I don't have to speculate. Oh, I wonder what this text means. I wonder if I, how do I put this in its context? Walk slowly, Bill. I wonder how I make sense of this. All right. But then when the New Testament every now and then will say, "Here's what's going on," and it makes it, it makes the Holy Spirit think of this, so I'm going to write it down. Then I know immediately the dots are connected for me. Why does Isaiah 53:1, which there is no chapter break, why does Isaiah say in that verse? Who has believed our report and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? He says it because people will witness what this Savior does before he goes to the cross. They will see his acts of benevolence. They will see his mercy. They will see his kindness. They will see his healing. They will hear his preaching and teaching. They will hear him convey the heart of God to the people. And they will hate him for it. They will plot to kill him as a result. Who are these people that Jesus is trying to save, not deserving people. To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? A bunch of spoiled, ungrateful, prideful sinners. Yes, ma'am. You referenced uh, John 8 a few minutes ago. and it, It's pretty interesting to me. In that, I think it's in that same chapter where the Pharisees even deny that they have ever been in enslavement. Right. They were enslaved yes. that day. Yeah, Rome had them. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it takes some. In, back oh, please, go ahead. This, you can see that they're in total denial yes. of, of this Savior that has re been presented to them after they've gotten this banquet. Yes. Once you make up your mind, here's the thing. Once you make up your mind, you are not going to be saved by Jesus. Jesus cannot save you. Can't do it because he doesn't save people against their will. So once you make up your mind, I don't want to be saved by Jesus. Well, guess what? You're not going to be saved by Jesus. And the Pharisees made up their mind. And Isaiah, writing this 700 years earlier, envisioned by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, everything he had already written, which you know you know how 53 goes. You know what's, what's coming next week. But it was already pretty bad in 52. Without getting into the details, just describing the, the scene from afar, to see this king high lifted up whose visage is so marred, more like any other man, so beaten up no one's ever seen or heard anything like this. That's, that's bad enough. 
And as he's writing that, he thinks, well, I hope the people who receive the Savior are grateful. And then the Holy Spirit says, nope. Nope, in fact, they're going to hate him. In fact, they're the reason why he's like that. It's not just some, some Gentile army came in and he died fighting like Braveheart. No, that's not what it's like. It's he came with benevolence and peace. And when the night came for his passion to begin, he just stuck his arms out and let them take him. And they gladly took him and they butchered him. That's the people to whom the arm of the Lord is revealed. Who is this person? Well, let's back up. 53 verse 2. He grows up before him. He grows up amongst his own people before God as himself being this tender plant. He does not appear to be this mighty thing. He looks like this little twig, this little sapling growing out of the tree, the family tree of Jesse and King David. A root out of dry ground. A little sprig of life in a barren wasteland of sin. He has no form nor comeliness, the King James says. There's nothing to see him in his appearance, in his demeanor, in the swagger of his walk, in the choice of his fashion. There's nothing in his face that screams movie star, that screams celebrity, that screams let's make this guy the king. He's clearly king material. If you saw him walking down the street, you wouldn't even think twice about him. You wouldn't think bad. You wouldn't think good. You would just say there's some other guy. There's some random Jew. When you see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He does not draw people to him superficially. And yet, what does he say about being drawn, drawing people? If I be lifted up, I will draw them into me. What's it going to take for him to draw people to him? It's not beauty that we'll see. It's a visage so marred, more like any other man we've ever seen. We've never seen someone so bloody, so beaten up. And then when you pair that with the good news, he did that so you could be saved, then I fall in love with him. I don't fall in love with him because he's pretty. I don't fall in love with him because he's handsome. We fall in love with Tom Hanks in the 80s because he's got a funny personality. He's got that, that beautiful face. I guess it's not that beautiful. We fall in love with Harrison Ford in the 80s. I'll say it because he had a beautiful face. He was a great action star, right? No one's fallen in love with Jesus. He didn't have a face for it. But when you hear what he does for you, then a deep-rooted love strikes in the heart of the person who hears the story and sees what he goes through. It's not the beauty that draws you. It's when he's lifted up that he draws you. Okay, we'll keep going to the verse. 53.3. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And we hid our faces from him. He was despised, he repeats himself, and we esteemed him not. Let's start at the top. He is despised and rejected of men. This is written in the perfect tense, signifying in the mind of God these things have already happened. He just wants you to write about it 700 years earlier. They will happen with certainty. God writes about it as though it already has happened. This is God's son. This is God's self writing about. To whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? A people who, when he comes down to save them, will be despised by them, rejected of them. A man of sorrows, who, as he would describe, doesn't even have a pillow to lay his head every night when he wants one. Acquainted with grief. Who are your acquaintances? Who are the people you're around all the time? My Lord's acquaintance, his closest, most constant companion, was grief. That's maybe the saddest statement in this whole bloody, battering chapter. A man of sorrows, 
acquainted with grief. Despised, he is despised. And what's our response to that? We say, you deserve this. We hid our faces from him. Four, surely, with certainty, unequivocally, guaranteed, he's borne our griefs. When you see him like that, don't think for a hair of a second. He must have deserved that. No, he's bearing my griefs. By all means, insert your name. Carried our sorrows. I don't know if you know the name. I was privileged when I was younger to hear Wendell Winkler, old gospel preacher from Tennessee. His son, Dan, is the greatest gospel preacher living today. But Wendell was the, the consummate old southern gospel preacher. Knew the Bible front and back, upside down, in Greek, English, Hebrew, multiple translations. Nothing that matters. Not to show off he didn't know it. He just knew it. He knew the book. And he would preach, and I heard him preach 45 minutes on the suffering servant. And he got to this verse, and I'll never forget it. I was my first year preaching school. He died like a year later. And so he was old. His voice was trembling. He couldn't go as much as he could. So I could only hear about what he was like before. But what I heard was already amazing. And he would emphasize every pronoun. Surely he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. And we did a stream of uh, smitten, stricken of God. And afflicted. We did that to him. Those are that face that he has that is so scarred and battered and bloody, that back that he has that's been ripped up to confetti, the blood that is streaming should be mine. It's his because my blood wouldn't have done anything for me. It would have just oozed out of my body and I would have died. But his blood was precious, his blood was sacred. His blood can make mine pure so that I won't need to shed mine for my sins because mine will be washed away. But his blood was sinless, and he died for my dirty, muddy, sinful blood. He carried my griefs that all my sins caused me up Golgotha's hill, so that I don't have to feel bad anymore. He carried all my sorrows that my sins have caused me, so that I don't have to feel bad anymore. Let the bell ring. We'll start in 53.5 next week. And while I've got you on the phone, if you want to subscribe, you can do so by going to anchor.fm slash Matthew-Martin414. I've got uh, free audio files here and there that I'll release every now and then. But for the most part, I put everything behind a massive giant paywall where you have to pay upwards of, I think it's 99 cents a month. So if you can, if you can manage that a dollar a month, <clears throat> that's, you know, it's not easy, but if you want to whip out a buck, then you get hundreds of audio files of all of my sermons and classes and devotionals. So it's uh, anchor, A-N-C-H-O-R dot F-M slash Matthew, M-A-T-T-H-E-W dash Martin 414 and hit subscribe for a buck and you get all my hundreds and hundreds of audio files. All right. Thank you.